Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop us. I like you, I could not. That's when it got wheels off. Welcome to Wheels Off. My guest today is Will Forte. Will was on SNL for years, where he created the character McGruber that went on to become a cult classic film. He created the show and wrote the show Last Man on Earth. He starred in a critically acclaimed movie, really beautiful movie called Nebraska. He's a fantastic writer. He's a creator of oddball characters that somehow have a lot of humanity and depth. He's one of the funniest people I know. Please welcome to Wheels Off, my guest, Will Forte. Hi, Will. Hello. <laughs> Um, so this we is, already actually saw each other. This is our second earlier, take. <laughs> so that's like a stage hello. Um, yeah. So this is a conversation about the creative process and the creative life. Um, okay. What are you working on right now creatively, and how is it inspiring to you? Right now, uh, I've actually just gone through this period of complete sloth dome, where I, I was working on The Last Man on Earth for four seasons, just bonkers amount of work I just would be in it every second of every day 100 110 hour work weeks for seven months in a row uh, then like collecting my wits go back into another season it was nuts show got canceled I didn't sit on my butt I traveled a ton and now just kind of clawing my getting excited to uh uh, work on stuff again and we've been working on uh, MacGruber trying to figure out a, a TV series version of MacGruber um, but it's it's just tricky because like the uh, legally there could be some some because th- it's it's just a pain in the butt since sure um, you know uh I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I don't want... This could potentially be used in a court of law if, if, I, <laughs> if I say what the... You know. But, okay, I can say it. Like, it's... The MacGyver people already were a little crusty when we made the movie, which was... At that time, MacGyver was just a... You know, a, a franchise that had not been... Uh, it had just been idle for, you know, ten years or something like that when we were doing stuff on uh, SNL, and and they were, you know, as I said, crusty when we were doing a movie version. Now they have an existing television show, <laughs> so us trying to do a television show, we anticipate some some major crustiness. But who knows? Maybe maybe like. God, they've you know that dude's got so much money. What? <laughs> and, and the MacGruber character is like basically nothing like MacGyver. I mean, it's you know, so I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see uh, 
what happens. But we, it's when we don't think about that and the stress of like, oh, how do we, uh, you know, get, jump those hurdles? Uh, like the thinking about this, the the different MacGruber scenarios and plot lines has been really really fun. We're coming up with some just disgusting and fun stuff. <laughs> it's been really fun, but God, I hope we can do it. The, like the level of work you do on MacGruber and the level of work that you did on Last Man, like you're way more involved than most people. I mean, obviously, you're so far beyond just being a performer, right? You're the creator, the writer. You're kinda... Oh yeah, and I'm OCD, so I'm I'm all over everything. Like you know, writing, rewriting. You know, we have writing staffs, we have editors and stuff like that. But like, I'm kind of the last line of defense. But you know, I'm in there on the you know, I make sure that we all outline stuff together for the most part. And then you'll send somebody and the outlines are super intense. Uh, you know, have a lot of the jokes already in there. Um, and, and then when we get them back, it'll be part of the rewrite. I don't know. I, you know, no, uh, you know, we had a, ton of awesome writers also but I'm just a control freak so you know the writing the then we do it and then editing and god the music all just everything it would be like the days would be wake up at 6 a.m go to the set act until six or seven at night then write until midnight go to bed wake up at six it'd be that and on weekends go to go to edit and during the days when you're acting like when they would do a lighting setup you know they change around to and you know you'd get 20 minutes to light i'd run to the writer's room or run into the editing bay there's never a second where you can take a break that kind of helps me understand how when i would see you between during the four months of like quiet time between what at work it always seemed like you were a little weird, just cutting loose. I know you'd like shave your half shave your head oh my and God. just <laughs> that was for the show. That wasn't yeah. part of the cutting loose. But then you but then you'd go around like a crazy man for four months just kinda It was I mean, I'm I'm just now back to being a kind of normal person. Like it was it was If if McGruber goes, will it be like that for you again? No, because uh Last Man on Earth was, I mean, there were a t- ton of super talented people surrounding me, but ultimately, uh, you know, I created it with Chris Miller and Phil Lord, but they're so busy that they kind of, in the beginning, we all, you know, they, we we would write it, but then they would give a bunch of notes. Then, then they kind of started moving on doing other projects. And then, so I was kind of in charge of all that stuff with MacGruber it's more of a three-headed monster uh, where it's um, Yorma Taconi mm-hmm. and John Solomon and I do it together. So it's, so I like those responsibilities are, those guys have as much ownership over the show as I, you know, it's a complete three-way responsibility mm-hmm. split and they're, they know the character so well. And, it, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that the people at Last Man on Earth didn't, didn't weren't these amazing people who knew the character really well and you know could write their asses off and uh but it's just it's slightly different when you have two other people to share that 
burden of responsibility with. Um, yeah, and maybe your own willingness to relinquish it a little. Yeah, let them. yeah, yeah. And and also, uh, uh, network, you're doing so many episodes that you would write like four or five episodes you'd have in the, you know, completed, you'd have completed the writing of four or five episodes once you started production. So you'd start shooting the stuff, still needing to write 13 or 14 episodes <laughs> as you're shooting and then editing at the same time. The plan with MacGruber would be to do, you know, hopefully do some kind of streaming eight episodes or 10 episodes per season, which would mean you... I feel like we know what we want to do with the season way more than we usually would with Last Man on Earth, yeah. which we would figure out on the fly. And I mean, with anything, you're figuring a bunch of stuff out on the sure. fly. But the goal would be to get most or all of the writing done before you go into production then because there's not the like network tv show you have those set dates that it has to go out by with with uh you know streaming thing you just get it all done and then give them to them afterwards so you could so i wouldn't have to do all those things at once i could compartmentalize and just concentrate on the writing then the acting and then the editing. You must do really well with pressure. Because that sounds like a lot of pressure. I mean, I... I... Did... I... Yeah, I yeah. think I do. <laughs> I think I do. I mean, it, it... it That amount of pressure... Every season I wanted that show to get canceled. I mean, it was... <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And but But it was such a crazy amount of work. But I also knew that I couldn't... I couldn't relinquish the responsibilities because it was like my baby. So it was, I needed the show to get canceled to stop. Yeah. (laughs) Like I would just never stop. It'd be like, I got into this. So, uh, and it, it, the pressure kind of fucked with me a little bit. Like I, I, uh, I drank too much. I got uh, like, I'm like, it, it was, there was stuff that I did to, it just turned me into a, I don't want to say monster, but just like a different, like, like I generally like, have liked myself during my life. In the last, while I was at the show, I did not, I was not the version of myself that I liked. Like it was, I don't even know if people would be able to tell much of a difference, but inside I had to live a lot more selfishly. I would never see friends and I'd just like you know I'd at midnight I'd have to go to bed and I'd be so like jacked up from all the stress that I would start like drinking to go to bed sure. and then it just like the drinking stuff became a coping mechanism and like like a stress reduction thing and and it just like so it's it tough it's something I've talked about a lot with even not as part of these conversations, but just with other artists, it's like um, the negative voices in your head and how do you sort of cope with it? And you're bringing up these coping mechanisms and obviously musicians are constantly turning to booze or smack or whatever horrible self-destructive thing. But uh, like, how do you, because what you do is so in public and everything comes through your face and it's all, how do you deal with that kind of negative internal voice? 
Like, uh, other than drinking yourself to sleep at night. I mean, is is it well, something? Uh, like, yeah, I mean, like ner- like nerves. Because to me, acting is terrifying anyway. Uh, you know, it's it's weird because you like at a certain point the drinking stuff got to the point where I had developed these habits that once the show got canceled. I kind of kept that habits up. So yeah. I finally got to a point where I'm like, okay, whatever this thing is that is making me drink, uh, I need to stop this and confront whatever that shit is head on. Yeah. So I stopped drinking. I'm still, it's been like two and a half months cool. of just not drinking. And I've realized like, I'm so much happier. It's <laughs> like, I, first of all, I have so much more time in each day. Getting back into shape because I got horribly out of shape during the show. Just had no time to do anything but just work on the show and eat fried foods and stuff like that. Um, you look great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> the But it makes you realize, like, oh, I can do all these things. I can, like, I've, I've had to do a couple um, show things, things in front of audiences yeah. where normally I would maybe... I would I would never drink during a work day for sure, but like if you're doing some kind of charity event or yeah. something like that where you're getting up on stage, you know I'd have a little nip of something beforehand. Just it's stressful, it's nerve wracking. You, you at least I've never been completely comfortable getting up in front uh, in front of people on stage. So it's there's this level of nerves that always shows up. Even for like a non-televised something in front of fifty people, yeah, um, or at Largo, which is which you're yeah. going to do that next week. I saw, right? which is like, and oh, that's yeah, all your oh, friends, yeah. right? That's just like Largo. No, no, no. I know, the loving place in the world. But. Exactly, and you, it's just like this thing where you forget. Oh yeah, I didn't used to do this. I could do it without it, and some just somewhere along the way, little by little, you form these habits where it you don't remember that you didn't do it like that before. And yeah. so I've done several times without drinking. It's like, oh, that's right. I could like, yeah, I can survive a couple nerves before a show. And then you get out on stage and it's totally fine. And I find that like, I'm way crisper with my thoughts and, and I don't know. It, it's just like, and, and not just that, but then going to like weddings and stuff like that. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's right. You can have a friggin' blast at a wedding without drinking. So, yeah. you know, I don't know if I'll not drink for the rest of my life, but it's like these habits, it's been really a valuable time to break these habits and kind of just confront all emotions head on, um, which I don't think I was doing for a long time. But then you realize like, oh, a lot of this self-hate and the depression and stuff like that was directly because of the alcohol like like you know you you the stress you dull the stress with all that but then you're you're also like oh no wonder i'm depressed because i'm putting a freaking depressant in my body like <laughs> around the clock so it's it's that's you know. fa- i think it's fascinating I've, I've been sober for three years now and it's oh really it's just that thing where I didn't think I could go out on stage, and now I go out and I think, how did I do it the other way? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really fun. Yeah. So you came into this life, like this weird life of being a creator and a performer in a really roundabout way, right? And you didn't, yeah. didn't kind of wind up 
in the public eye or working in this sort of in the field that you're in until pretty late, right? Yeah, yeah. Was there an epiphany moment really early on that you sort of denied for a while or did did it just hit you like in your late 20s like, oh crap, I, I don't want to be a square. I want to be a, a weirdo. <laughs> well, I was always a weirdo. <laughs> uh, uh, I kind of, I, I remember there definitely was like an epiphany moment at some point and it was a little earlier than that because but but it's you know you have that epiphany moment but then it makes you think back like the epiphany didn't come out of nowhere like it I think there was I think my whole life I was fascinated by comedy a huge fan of comedy and you know you would have this it would just look like so much fun what these people were doing and uh yeah, you just think, oh, but I could never do that. That's for those people, you know, or that's for people who they've probably been, you know, doing stand-up since they were eight years old. Or so, I don't know. And then you just realize, oh, that's right. They're all people and they just kind of start at some point. So I thought, I hate what I'm doing right now is doing all this financial stuff that my dad had done very low level. I was not like, you know, I hadn't fully engaged in that but but I just hated it I'm like well why not try comedy so I started writing um early 20s and going through the groundling system yeah um but that was a scary that was a scary thing um to to tell my family that I wanted to do comedy uh it it was that was the hardest part of it or to tell just to tell anybody, because in my head, I was thinking, oh, it seems like you're bragging. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I could make it in this business. So uh, so that's why it was it was weird, but my family was super cool and supportive about it. What, like, were, were you always doing music throughout? Well, it's funny that you bring up the thing about looking at other people and being and thinking, like, well, I can't. I couldn't. I couldn't do that. I mean, clearly yeah. they're on Mount Olympus, and I'm just down here in the pig slop or whatever. Like, it's that thing where you just can't believe that you could do what they do. But I, I remember going to see David Bowie when I was 13, and he came up for his encore, and I was kind of around on the side of the arena in Dallas, and Reunion Arena, and he came off, and he was all alone, and they handed him uh, like a scotch or something, and they gave him a towel, and he wiped his head off, and he. Someone handed him a lit cigarette. I just loved it. I loved it. It was kind of like a doctor. Scalpel! You know, it's a cigarette. And 70,000 people are going, Bowie, Bowie. And I remember thinking, like, he's just a guy. He's just a guy. And, he's, and what a fun job that would be. Yeah. But it, simultaneously, he seemed like a god. But I could also just see, like, the sort of practical humanity of it. Yeah. And, and then I started doing it around 13, 14, 15. And then I thought, oh, this is a thing that you can do. So I imagine for you, like being in Groundlings, you're in there day to day, like learning and seeing other people doing it and f- probably failing and, you know, tiny, yeah. tiny failures, but then kind of going like, oh, yeah, this is just, you just got to do it and do it. Oh, yeah. All, <clears throat> I mean, all the time with, and I, I don't know what it's like in music because it seems like it would, like with comedy, the the level of, I'm sure you can tell with music, how you're how like you must have this relationship with the audience where you can tell when when they're into it and when they're not but with comedy it's you either hear laughs or you don't it's like a much more 
it's a I don't want to say rigid like it's 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 binary. If you're not hearing laughs, <laughs> most likely they're not liking it. Whereas if you're if you're playing music, the people are maybe it's like more with music. Is it more like if people are in a place talking or something, then you know like oh they're not into this. Well, I've lost them a little bit, or I don't know. It's any little thing, and I and I think I I find that, and I wonder if you find this too that. You have to sort of make your own energy independent of what you're getting from them. Yeah. Because there can be, like last night we played the Fillmore, and there was whatever it is, 1,500 people. And God, the I, theater's I, so rad. I, it's my favorite venue in America. Yeah. But I looked out, and in the second half of the show where I'm starting to feel a little bit exhausted, I looked out, and there was a woman in the fifth row, and she just... Did this big yawn, and I thought, "Oh no!" And Fuck there were fifteen hundred people like screaming and dancing, and then just the one woman. And I just had to remind myself, "Don't let the one woman who just yawned." And God knows what she had going on. In Maybe her she's life. an ER nurse. She's yeah. been up for four days in a row. Maybe she went home that night and said, "I was so tired, but that was the best show I've ever been to." <laughs> but I had to remind myself, like, I can't live and die by each one of these people. Like, I yeah. know what I'm doing. I have to have confidence in myself and. Yeah, so, I mean, it's because yeah. it's got to be terrifying, especially like all those years on SNL when not only is there the audience in the room, but then there's all those cameras and you don't know what the ca- people on the other side of the cameras are thinking. Like, how do you kind of trick oh, yeah. yourself into, you just know you're good? Is oh, it- it's, I mean, like you said, you just have to develop your own sense of self-worth and like kind of a, well, Fuck everybody type that. I mean, not, you know, obviously not that. You, I mean, you love your audience. You want to please them. But, like, you also have to just be like, I'm going to do this thing. I like this thing. So I don't care if you like it or not. Yeah. Here it is. This is what I'm doing. Uh, deal with it type, you know, type thing. And, and I think it's a, I tend to like people with more of that attitude because you can tell when people are doing things specifically to please a more a bigger audience so i i kind of prefer and and there are people who can do those who can please a huge audience while doing those very specific things like that like like for instance uh Kristen Wiig, I mean, she's, you know, or like Will Ferrell, they, you know, like everyone loves them and they do these things that can be so delightfully weird and they're not at all sacrificing any kind of artistic integrity or any kind of thing to, you know, they're doing these awesomely weird inventive things that somehow they're able to, to like, get mass acceptance my kind of stuff is is weird that that kind of caters to a smaller segment so i i you know am uh uh very appreciative of how like how they're able to to do that thing where you know which which i would i would love it if i could somehow if my stuff was appealed to a, a more of a mass audience but like I've always had such respect for those guys and, and I mean a ton of people you know Zach Galifianakis I mean just yeah. a million people out there that are that are so good at it and I you know 
I do, but but you know what what I'm not into is people who are calculated. Yeah, calculating to try to appeal to a more mainstream audience. Um, Have you do you do you feel like you've ever? Because I know I felt like there were moments when I did that and it fails. Like I feel like the audience can sniff it. Like it's almost like desperation that. Do you feel like you've ever had moments where you gave in to the instinct, like, oh, God, maybe I should try and please these people uh, going against my own? Uh, I mean, I can't think of anything you've done that felt like that. I mean, I certainly have audience. done a lot of piece of shit things <laughs> that, that, like, there's always a reason I'll, I'll do things like, oh, this seems like it would be a fun thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, everything I've done. You know, there's a lot of stuff I've done that, but there's a reason for everything but stuff that i i've never i don't think gone into anything with the attitude of like oh i'm going to try to get everybody to like it there have been a couple things where i just wasn't able to be in charge of of stuff and and like it just gets it's out of your hands so you it's like other people make this decision you're like all right and and you just are kind of forced to do it but stuff you know the but, like, that's why MacGruber was, uh, somehow we were able to, like, control that stuff and make it very specific and um, to, to what we liked. We just did it for us more than anything. It was like, hey, we love this. Hope you do, too. Here it is. And, like, Last Man on Earth, um, you know, we were able to, for the most part, do what we wanted to do and keep it pretty weird and... You know, certainly there were some episodes that were better than others. Like, you know, you just That's get a freaking game. tired. And at a certain point, you're just, you know, you're 11 or 12 episodes into a season. You just don't have the time to spend that you could have on the really early ones. Or at the very end, you kind of get that. You see the light at the end of the tunnel. So you just get a little more energy. So there was always a lull toward the end. But... But yeah, for the most part, you know, we were, I, I feel, I'm really proud of the, you know, especially for a network show, being, being able to keep it weird, and we had to we had to fight for it because uh, there was certainly some some uh, uh, obstructive uh, stuff at, at times to trying to get us to to do things differently. Um, yeah, that's a very long answer to yeah. that question. <laughs> Um, remember the question. No, it's good, but that's a, it's funny in the in these conversations I've had. That's the theme that comes up, right? Where it's uh, if you're doing something to specifically try to please other people, it's like compromised right away. And so the best thing is to try and make something that you love and feel good about, and then hope that it sort of accidentally becomes successful. And and yeah. it seems like that's what's because that's always what's going to come through. It's like people you can just. You can feel it when when somebody's super into what they're doing. There's just like a little, a little um, sparkle to it, yeah. you know. When when it's when it's when you're loving what you're doing, like it's that's what I when people always will, well, always uh, people sometimes ask, oh, what should I? I want to start writing. You know, what's your advice? And it's like just do. Don't listen to anybody's advice. Eh, that's not true. Take people's advice, but just above everybody, if you feel super strongly about something and every single person is 
giving you advice to do something else, do the thing you want to do for sure. Cause it's like, you can just, it comes through on the page. It comes through in a performance. It's like, you know, nobody, you know, what's best for you. Yeah. And the, and the, it's like, if you write something to try to cater to a mainstream audience, it might still not cater to a mainstream audience. So like in your head, if you do the thing that makes you really happy and it doesn't succeed, you can way more easily live with it than if you've sold your soul a little bit to try to do this thing that then fails. Yeah. That's the worst. It's like a double failure. Yeah. So uh, finally, if you were to run into a 21-year-old version of yourself, but working in today's world, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, my God. Um, don't stress out about every teeny little thing. Um, don't use alcohol as a coping mechanism in, <laughs> in 20 years. Um, I don't know. It's so interesting. I, I think back to when I was starting out. There was no YouTube. Yeah. Like YouTube was passing around VHS tapes of the, you know, Spirit of Christmas, the early South Park thing. Like things that's how word would get out is like little short films that somebody had done that you heard about. I remember you know, when I started writing, people would have oh, there's oh, this tape of of Orson Welles when he's drunk on you know all these things that you can just like pop into youtube now so there's so many ways it's just such a different situation now like it's almost tough to give advice to people who want to start doing comedy because like i don't it's just i like my thing back then how i got into the business was i was like i want to start writing I had had this guy that I knew in college who was uh, good friends with my girlfriend in college. He became an assistant at a, uh, an agency. And he was the one guy I knew who had any connection to an agency. So I gave him my stuff. And he somehow liked it. And if he hadn't liked it, I, knowing me back then, I I I didn't have like such a you know such self confidence that I would have kept going on. I would have probably said, "Oh well, I tried. This probably isn't the right thing for me." I would have just kept going with the financial thing or tried to figure it out. But I just somehow lucked into this one guy liked my stuff, and not just that, but he is the one guy I know and it turns out that he's was a fantastic agent like one of the best agents in Hollywood like but I didn't know that 25 years ago he was just the guy I by some divine providence knew like so I a lot of luck goes into it and I worked my ass off and he worked his ass off but like those there are just some things that you luck into and that was one of them because I like at that time and place that I, I, I would have gone to UCLA. If I hadn't gone to UCLA, I wanted to go to Berkeley. I wanted to go to Dartmouth. I wanted to go to Stanford. Got denied from all those places. 
reluctantly went to UCLA because it was the best of the places I got into. I can't imagine not going there now. And for sure, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know what I would, if I was, if I wasn't already in Los Angeles, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't move states to go to the Groundlings. Yeah. I can, I would have driven the 40 minutes from Santa Monica to Melrose to do it, to take that chance. But I don't know that I would have had I had to jump that hurdle of, of like moving to a different state to do it. I probably, I can procrastinate with, you know, washing dishes. So like (laughs) with doing a career shift, I probably just would have said, eh, I'll do whatever I'm doing. It's hard to know. My sense of you is that you're really brave and that you have a really good work ethic. So I imagine you would have found a way. uh, Who knows? I mean, who knows? It's (laughs) it's so interesting. I think back, like, there are so many who knows moments like like it's it's so weird and and maybe maybe this was what i was you know i I assume like we're all kind of you know if you're really following listening to yourself you're probably doing what you're supposed to be doing but but and maybe i would have maybe it all would have worked out and i'd be doing the same thing but i don't know it's like sliding doors you know Dude, yeah. I've never seen the movie, but I use the term sliding doors. <laughs> it's the alternate realities, the different paths. Is that what that is? I've it's, never seen it either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So sliding, I use sliding doors, uh, and I also use uh, Sophie's Choice. Yeah. I've never, those are two movies I've never seen, but I use those. Yeah, we can throw them around. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've enjoyed talking to you. I just think you're so cool and so... Thank you. I, and, I, and I do, you know, what I've... When I think about you, when I know when you collaborate with people and just in my interactions with you, I think you're a really generous person and I appreciate that about you. Oh, thanks. Well, I, that's so nice to hear. I've enjoyed talking to you too. <laughs> thanks, Will. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.